Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, if you have a Bible with you. And if you need to, I just thought about this for myself, I'm turning off my phone. Just, you know, we have a problem sometimes with that, so we're going to turn off my phone. Mark chapter 5, 21 to 43. And put these open. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well, made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments... I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out, gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl or sweetie, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. He's given it to us because he loves us, and because every word is true and every word is relevant for our lives. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we look at this. Uh, uh, that would have been amazing to see that, Lord Jesus. 
It would have been amazing to see uh, this woman who had been uh, suffering under a blood disease of discharge for 12 years be healed, to see her elation, to see the wonder on her face. That would have been amazing. And to see Jairus travel with you and go home and see his daughter that he'd just gotten news had died, to see her raised again to life. How awesome, how amazing would that have been. But you've given us your word, and we think your word is true. We think that's what, that you, what is recorded in it is beneficial for us. And so we pray that this morning, even as we talk about this, that you would help us to respond appropriately to what was done 2,000 years ago and to bring it into our lives and to live according to what is in this passage. Would you bless us and would you be with us? And Lord, would you bless me? Um, I don't have the power to perform any miracles. And uh, if I'm honest, I don't really have the power to be able to preach a sermon that is beneficial for people. And so I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would enable me to proclaim things that are true, things that are beneficial, things that are challenging, but things that build us up. Would you bless us and would you be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So two miracle stories are sandwiched here together in this passage. Both of them have happy endings. Both of them are clearly miracles. And, uh, but I need to say this right at the very beginning. Miracles are not normative. They weren't normative then. They're not normative now. Uh, and the miracles in the Bible are not promises for what God is going to do in our 70 or so years that he gives us here on earth. They're not normative. They're not promises. Um, that's a part of what makes a, a miracle a miracle that's not normative. If you want a short definition for what a miracle is, a miracle is a public, it's something that's done publicly, it's testable, it's, you can observe it and see it and see if it was true, and it's clearly the supernatural work of God in the world to manifest his presence or to confirm his spokesperson. Now, most often in the scriptures, uh, God's, the miracles that people perform serve as uh, seals of approval from God to say, this person has my back and this person is called by me and empowered by me. That's what you see as you go through the scripture. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we read, um, I can get back to that slide. We read, salvation by grace through faith was first announced by the Lord. And then it was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that was the apostles, and God also testified to it, the salvation, by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God publicly confirmed the message of the gospel through signs and wonders and miracles and of those who were proclaiming those things. So the miracles that we see in the Bible are not normative for our lives. Um, the, uh, they're not promises. And the amount of miracles that Jesus performed in the first century were part of the uniqueness of what was taking place in the first century. Because of the incarnation of Jesus in the world, the entrance of the king, the, the son of God, into the world to face the kingdom of darkness, Satan and sin, there was a perfect storm as Jesus was bringing redemption into the world of brokenness. And so here, all these miracles, they, they authenticate his identity to the world, um, his message to the world, but it also served as the foretaste of of the fuller redemption that he's going to bring upon his return. And that's why so many miracles appear in the Gospels and the Acts. 
in the book of Acts because there was something unique that was taking place. And even though it took place then, does not mean it's a guarantee that we're going to face those things in the world now. Now, having said that, all, many of you in here can attest to God answering prayers in what we would say are miraculous ways of us looking and saying, I prayed and God immediately brought an answer to that. Just this morning, I'm not going to look at this person. I'm not going to look at this person. Um, just this morning, I had somebody tell me about uh, an ankle issue this person deals with largely in the morning. And he prayed to say, Lord, would you please bless me and remove this? And lo and behold, it went away immediately. Some of us experienced that with our backs. I've heard uh, stories about people with skin disorders, all sorts of things where God immediately steps in so that people can only say, this had to be the work of God directly in our lives. And so people are built up. They're excited about what God is doing. There seems to be no other explanation because of the timing. They prayed, and it was almost immediate. But I've also talked to other people who did not receive their miraculous answer to prayer. And some of them expressed deep disappointment, and some of them eventually disappear from the church altogether because they're so angry and bitter at God. I read a story years ago about Ted Turner, some of, you, uh, some of you know who Ted Turner is. Ted Turner uh, uh, was the founder of CNN and TBS, and uh, he is a billionaire, I think. He's, just, uh, he's one of the wealthiest men in the United States. And he's also, has, in his past, has been a very outspoken atheist, you know, very anti-religious. And in an interview years ago, he explained why that was for him. And the reason was, when he was growing up, he grew up in the church in the Bible Belt, but his sister contracted a disease that was very painful, and he would go and pray and ask God to heal his sister. He would hold her hand while she was in pain and pray for her, and uh, she ended up passing away eventually from that illness. And he said, that's why I don't believe in a God that can allow that sort of thing to happen and not intervene. At the same time, I've talked to people who have prayed for a miraculous intervention with some sort of disease or some sort of issue that they were dealing with, and God did not answer it by removing the, uh, the disease, but instead, hey, buddy, it's good. It's good. Um, so he can come sit up here if he wants. It would be really good. You can come sit. Um, but at the same time, they would say, God met them in a very special way, even though he didn't answer the prayer in the way that they wanted. They had a special sense of his peace, of his protection, of his guidance, and of his, of his love and affection for them, even in the midst of it. So they had a, an experience of God's love that transcended any circumstance or experience they were currently having, which most of us, we look to find God in our circumstances. But they said, I had the experience of God's presence regardless of my circumstances. And they say, I wouldn't trade that for the world. So it's kind of fascinating to see the way this all plays out. Does God still work in ways that we would describe as miraculous? Yeah, I think so, with a lowercase m. Uh, God does things in answer to the prayers of his people that we might not expect, that we can't explain with easy science or medicine or anything else in answer to prayer. But does he work in the same way here where one person is saying, hey, I'm speaking this way? Mm, that's probably not the way that he's working currently because we have his word and the message that's right in front of us. You can talk to me about that later. So, uh, so anticipating a miracle from what we're reading here may not be what we're supposed to get out of a miracle account. So what are we supposed to get out of this? Because if you're going to the miracle account and saying, God, where's my miracle? You're probably going to not make the right connection to this. 
So what we do is we look for other points of contact with us, for us. In both accounts, we see mentioned faith is a big component. So in verse 34, we read, your faith has made you well. So there's a reference to her faith. And then in verse 36, we read, do not fear, only believe or have faith. So what does he mean? Well, we tend to think of faith as something that's, that's true, but here he's giving us a different way of thinking about faith. It's not simply thinking that something is true, but it's entrusting your life and your welfare to Jesus. To believe in Jesus means, yes, I think it's true, but it means I'm offering up the deepest, most sensitive part of who I am in all of my helplessness and my weakness as a human being, and I'm entrusting my very welfare to him fully and completely. So oftentimes we think about faith as our response to what Jesus has done, and that's right, but I want you to see that there's an, there's an underlying element in both of these scenarios here. We don't, they entrust themselves to him in their helplessness. So it doesn't simply mean that I think it's true, but it means that I think that Jesus is absolutely necessary. Uh, so faith is not living for him, but faith is being absolutely convinced that I'm not able to live without him. I don't know what life holds, but I know this. He holds me, and I can't do life without him. So faith entrusts ourselves to him no matter what. And I think we really need to hear this, right? Not just that it's true and I'm doing life on my own to say, but I really need him because we have the sense that we can do life on our own until the bad things like these folks are dealing with in this passage happen and then we become aware, I really need him. So in a conversation with some pastors years ago, I asked them, what's the main thing that people that you know struggle with concerning faith? And I thought maybe it would be doubt, you know, because of the arguments from uh, atheists and our, culture, our secular culture. And it was interesting because none of them really said that. They said the people that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis deal with they have different struggles with faith. So one of them said, I think, I think the struggle with faith is that believing that God truly has the best in mind for his people. At any moment, thinking God has my best in mind, that's hard for us. And another pastor said this, I would say the biggest issue of faith for most people in my church to whom I minister appears when they must trust God in a situation that isn't going the way that they want or requires long suffering. Right? We struggle with that. God, fix it now. Do this now. And so um, there's this kind of thing that's going on in this passage where at the end he tells them not, uh, not to tell anyone about this, that no one should know this. And part of that is, we're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks, it's called the messianic secret, is Jesus did not want people knowing exactly his identity, that he was the Messiah that was coming. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. But one of those is because if people in that day and age thought that he was the Messiah, they might, there was a threat at points for them to come and take him and make him king by force. But that's not why he came primarily at that point. The reason he came at the first century was to be our redeemer and our savior. He didn't need to go to a throne at that point. First, he needed to go to a cross for our sakes. And so that's why he didn't want people to know is because he had still to go through his, his, his mission of redeeming and saving his people. And if you see that our king is willing to suffer for us, then you know I can trust him. Right? So Brendan Manning has this quote talking about trust in the midst of the hard things that we, we deal with in life. And he said, trust defines the meaning of living 
by grace rather than by works. In other words, I'm not doing hard things to earn God's love. God has shown me his love and I can do hard things. He said, trust is like climbing a 50-foot ladder, reaching the top, and hearing someone down below yell, jump! The trusting disciple has this childlike confidence in a loving father. Trust says in effect, Abba, Father, just on the basis of what you've shown me in your son, Jesus, I believe you love me. You have forgiven me. You will hold me and never let me go. Therefore, I trust you with my life. So faith is the conviction that even when things do not go my way, God is good. It isn't that I trust God to bless my plans. It's that I trust God even when my plans don't work out because I know God is, loves me and he's working out things for my best. So what we're talking about is how that works itself out in this passage. I wanted to frame that up so that we know as we're looking for this, we're not looking for what do I need to do to get my miracle, but to say what do I need to do, period, in my relationship with God? What am I supposed to learn from this? And three things here. Jesus has, Jesus does, Jesus will. And my wife said, that is the most generic outline I've ever seen. <laughs> yes, it got fleshed out as the week went on. So first point, Jesus has deep affection for us. His love transcends our situation. I am more important to Jesus than whatever situation I'm going to him to fix. So I think the situation's important, but Jesus thinks, no, you're important regardless of your situation. And we see that as we come into the first uh, little episode we're going to talk about, the woman with the bleeding here. Now, we can, feel really, uh, we can feel really strong pity for her because of this 12-year bleeding discharge that she has. I can't imagine that for 12 years, how physically exhausting that would be and all the things she would deal with in terms of her body. But that's not really the main thing that people in the first century would have seen because they would have thought about the Old Testament in Leviticus. And in Leviticus, there is, an, what Leviticus 15 said that a woman with a discharge was supposed to be, uh, enter into, uh, she was unclean and to enter into isolation until she was clean. So this woman was in a perpetual state of ceremonial uncleanness. That meant she couldn't go into the temple. And that meant that when she touched other people, they became unclean, right? And so that meant whenever she went out in public, she had to say, unclean, so people would know not to brush up against her. So that's a huge part of this passage. So for 12 years, she has been isolated from people, not experiencing any kind of touch, and people not wanting to interact with her the way that we, we commonly would do. And that would be very, very difficult, um, so this ritual purity, you know, that, that image from the Old Testament, it's like, where, what, is, what is that getting at? Because it's not necessarily sin, but it's a picture of sin. And when you rub up against somebody else and touch them, they become ceremonially unclean. We know how that works with, with things in the world. As other people's sin begins to affect us, and, and we may not have been the person to do it, but we're affected by it. So when it comes to, like, gossip, other people may say it, but then it stays in you, and now you see that person they were gossiping about differently. You can't help it, right? And that's the image that's here is there are things that happen to us in the world that make us unclean. And to enter into God's presence, we have to become clean. And so she couldn't have people touch her. And this becomes a problem in the passage with her healing. Because the image of touch is pulled all the way through. 
So when Jairus shows up and uh, he's requesting that Jesus come and heal his daughter, he says the, for Jesus to come and lay his hands on the little girl so that she could be healed. That involves touching. And so this woman is uh, walking through the crowd of all these people, and you know she's bumping up against people and not telling them what's really going on because she's got to get to Jesus. She's thinking to herself in verse 28, if I touch even his garments, just touch, I'll be made well. So in verse 27, she touches the hem of his garment, just a little out-of-the-way place where he might not even notice. But Jesus felt the power go out to him for somebody who has faith. And in chapter 5, verse 30, he turns around and asks the question, who touched my garment? And that's exactly what she had been thinking. If I just touch it, he'll never know. <laughs> he knew. Oh, no. And so she's terrified uh, because she'd touched this rabbi. She'd jostled against the crowd. They said the crowd was pressing against him. Guess what? They were all pressing against her. So she's terrified. What's going to happen to me that I've made all these people unclean? And I didn't come speaking out. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. And she has no clout, she has nothing, she has no money, she has no advocate, she has no right to ask this of Jesus. And Jesus, in her mind, is probably a good first century rabbi, and so that means he's not going to do anything that's going to make himself ritually or ceremonially unclean for anybody, right? Her fear probably has something to do with the fact that she's done this, and now she's going to have the miracle taken away that she's just experienced, because she knew, my body's healed, I can get away, and you know, I've, I've got my stealthy miracle, I can go off into the crowd and just slip away. But he knew someone had touched him uh, who was afraid to be noticed. So he turned and gently asked, who touched my garment? Now, I don't think he was angry. Who touched my garment? You know, nothing like that. I think he's asking it in a way that invites her to come forward. Who touched my, I, who touched my garment? Because he knew. And that's exactly the word that she had used in her mind was, if I just touch him. So Jesus did not want her to be an anonymous beneficiary. He wanted her to know that she mattered. And as we look at the passage, there's this deep well of affection in Jesus for this woman. And he sends her away uh, after her grace heist uh, with the words he would have said to her had she come and asked him for it. Verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And can't you hear the tenderness and compassion in his voice for her, right? He says the same thing he would have told her if she'd asked. So Jesus healed her because he loves the least as much as he loves the greatest. She was the least. Jairus would have been considered the greatest, but he's showing us that no matter what we're hiding from other people, no matter how we're unclean, we can bring that to Jesus and he greets us and meets us with healing for whatever it happens to be. So then, what can we say clearly about human suffering from this, this passage? God cares for people when they suffer and God cares for you when you suffer. When Jesus stepped into the world, we could put a face with God looking into his eyes, see his expression, hear the tone of his voice. So we don't have to speculate about how God would feel. Jesus is showing us this here. This woman couldn't go to the temple, so the temple came to her. Because Jesus is the place where God and man meet, just like the temple in the Old Testament. She couldn't go to the temple of her God, so her God came to her. That's what God thinks about us. And what we see in this passage is he loves us and has compassion. Even when he says no to our prayer, 
the specific prayer, he still has compassion upon us. So, the woman. The second thing we see in this passage is Jesus does. And what we look at and we see in this is Jesus does go with us, knowing the end even when we don't. And knowing that when we see the end, that it, we're going to be pleased and delighted with it. So our story with uh, our story individually with Jesus is bigger than whatever situation we're in. And that's what we see with the story of Jairus. As I was reading through this passage uh, this week, I was thinking, with whom are we supposed to identify the most in this? And I really think it's Jairus, because Jairus goes on a journey of faith. He has enough faith to go to Jesus in his need, to say, I need you, and I need you to come here. And this man seems pretty confident that, God, that Jesus, if he lays his hands on his daughter, she can be healed. And so he runs to Jesus. So we can relate with Jairus with this sense of need, but that's not the whole of the story. There's a lot more that happens than him just coming to Jesus. So let me kind of flesh this out for you a little bit. Uh, the first part of this, I, got, I heard a guy talking about a, a preacher. He helps us think about the moment before Jesus, the moments before Jesus goes to, or Jairus goes to Jesus and falls down at his feet. So imagine the scene. Uh, Jesus has just gotten off a boat. And Jairus runs up to him. But what has happened before that? Because Jairus knows about Jesus. So let's like put it in reverse for a little bit. Backwards. And uh, Jesus had been in Jairus' region, his vicinity, and gotten into a boat. And the boat went, and that's where the storm on the water happened. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, right? The storm on the water. And then Jesus gets off the boat, and there's a legion, and the guy with all the demons. And then they tell Jesus to leave, so Jesus gets back on the boat, and he goes back to the same place. So this preacher said, imagine, for, imagine this journey of Jesus, right? Jesus leaves. The little girl, just based on the timing, was probably ill before Jesus left and got on the boat. So Jairus is probably, he's a, he's a synagogue ruler. He's heard, maybe heard all of these people in Jerusalem beginning to talk negatively about Jesus because we've already read in the text that people are trying to kill Jesus. So he's not sure, should I go to Jesus or not? My daughter's ill. The doctors can't help. We don't know what to do. Should I go to Jesus? Everybody, these people that are bigwigs say, I shouldn't. Maybe I should. So he's pacing. And then finally he's thinking, maybe I should go to Jesus. I'm going to go. Jesus is already on the boat and he's leaving. So he's kicking himself and his stomach is just doing knots. He's thinking, oh no, my only hope has left. And so as, Ju as soon as Jesus comes back from his voyage of calming the storm, healing the man with the demon possession, coming back, getting out of the boat. Jairus, as soon as he hears, falls right down in front of Jesus and says, please come, my daughter's near death. Lay your hands on her and she will be healed. Whew, I said it. Now she's going to be safe. Then what happens? They start making their way across town and the crowds gather. And I don't know if you've ever left a football game when the big crowds are kind of making, you're just kind of shuffling along in the middle of everybody and come on, can we just pick this up a little bit? Jairus is probably on pins and needles at this point. Come on, just move. Just everybody move, please. We got to get to my daughter. And then there's this woman that touches the hem of Jesus's robe. And Jesus turns and says, who touched my garment? And so he's sitting here thinking, no, 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 lady, oh, please, can we just go? Please, can we just go? But then Jesus heals this woman. And at that point, Jairus knows, I came to the right man. All right, okay, this is really good. Let's get going again. And then people come up to Jairus and say, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? 
And any hopes that he had are now completely dashed. And that's when Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. Now, it isn't simply believing that things were going to work out okay, but a faith that was deeply directed to Jesus himself. Put aside your fears and trust me. I'm with you. I'm going into this with you. Trust me and just walk with me. And that's what they did. They walked. And I think this is why I, when I look at this passage, I think we're all gyrus. All of us are gyrus. Because in some sense, we get to the point of utter neediness and we go to Jesus and we say, I believe you, I trust you. Can you fix this problem for me? And then eventually, things get in the way of that. So desperate, desperation can overcome our obstacles to faith in Jesus. But then difficult things that we face in life can do the exact opposite and begin to hinder our faith in Jesus. I mean, we know that Jesus can perform miracles. We know that Jesus is something special and unique. We may even have the inkling that Jesus is the Son of God, but obstacles get in the, the way. Are we going to walk with Jesus even when it's hard? So Jairus goes back on, her, on the way, and Jesus has said, just believe. And I'm sure he's thinking, maybe they got it wrong. So they show up to the house, all the mourners are crying, and Jairus is undone. It is true. Oh, no. So what does he do? He lets Jesus handle the situation. Jesus kicks everybody else out, takes three of his apostles, the, husband, the father and the mother, into the room, and he says to the little girl, Talitha kumi, and it's, it's a real miracle, right? She wasn't just a recess, she wasn't just um, ill, and then Jesus came and, you know, he said the magic words to wake her up. She was dead. And that's that little detail at the end where he, he says, give her some food. It's not because she's a teenager and she's hungry, right? It's because, uh, you can read this in, at the end of Luke, is ghosts don't eat. And so she's a living person. She's alive. So they give her food to prove to everybody no, this is something not supernaturally ugly. This is, she's brought back to life. So, at this point in the passage, we, w- we would want to say, they lived happily ever after. Roll the credits. We're done. This is fantastic. But here's the problem. This is first century Palestine. This is not a fairy tale. The average lifespan in Palestine in the first century, a lot of people, there's a lot of different figures, but a lot of people say it was around 30 to 35 years old. There's a lot of infant mortality. A lot of young men died in war, so there's a really low um, life expectancy. If you take out the, inf- the infant mortality rate, it's 55. And then a few people, a few individuals lived into their 80s or 90s. But there's no hand sanitizer. There are no heating pads. There's no golf clubs. There's no Bengay. There's no Pepto-Bismol. Life is hard. So this is not a happy ending because the story goes on. This is a continuation of life in a fallen and broken world. And joy overwhelmed the sadness for just a moment. But it is hard and it's difficult. All the people in this story will bury each other and that bone disintegrating grief will start right back up. It can't have a happy ending. Except for one thing. This is not Jairus' story. Right? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's his story. It's not Jairus' story. And the story hasn't ended yet. So Jesus' story goes on. 
And he leaves here. He eventually ends up in Jerusalem. He ends up on a cross bearing our sins. He ends up in a tomb having died for our sins. He ends up being raised to life for our justification and for our declaration before God that we are made righteous in his sight. And he eventually ends up on the throne. And someday, one day, what the Bible says is Jesus is going to come back. And that's the end of the story when everything is made right in the world. So at the cross... Uh, during Jesus' life with all the miracles, we see that he's reversing the calamity. And when he died on the cross and he's raised from the dead, it's showing he's reversing the calamity. And when he comes back, we're going to see this across the board with everything. But the reality is, is we don't have to fear what happens when we die because we have Jesus. So there's a, a Scottish writer by the name of David Dixon, lived 1583 to 1662, he was asked by the, his friends gathered around, gathered around him while he was on his deathbed. Can you imagine that? Like asking, hey, what do you see? What are you doing? Um, but this is what Dixon replied while he's on his deathbed. He said, I've taken all my bad deeds and I've put them on a heap. And I've taken all my good deeds as well and I have put them on the same heap. And I have run away from that heap into the arms of Jesus. I die in peace. So this is why I think we're like Jairus on the road, is there's always something. There's always something that's hard. There's always something that's here, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story, the little story we were looking at, the passage, was she's raised to life. Isn't that good? There's a happy ending for that. But what the Bible shown us, there's an ultimate happy ending. But we're on this journey. And we have hard things that happen all the time. And we, we can deal with that in the gospel. Now, I'm going to speak to you for just a second. Uh, about a common thing that we deal with. And uh, as I was reading this, I had the sense that there would be a lot of you in here who would say, if I gave you the choice between, between being Jairus and the woman with the bleeding, you would say, I'd rather be the woman with the bleeding. And here's why, most of you, you'd say, if my kids are doing well, I can endure anything, right? If my kids are doing well, I can endure anything. So given a choice, I'd rather be the one suffering than to have my kids not doing well. And some of us, when we look at the, uh, the stories of our children, uh, the fear is, and this is true of friends too and people we love, the fear is that we're pretty sure they died without knowing Christ. But I came across a story this week from a pastor who was challenging that. And it's an unusual story, but I thought, wow, God is... God's grace extends beyond what I give him credit for. So there was a man who uh, fell off a cliff. True story. This is not an illustration. True story. Man fell off a cliff uh, and it was high enough to where when he hit bottom, he was going to die. And on the way down, he, uh, he gave his life to Jesus. He prayed and cried out to Jesus. So between the time when he fell and the time where he landed, he became a Christian. So I don't know how many seconds that is. Some of you physics majors in here could tell us that. Now, here's the amazing thing about it. He said, the, the guy lived. That's how we know this. And he said, he, was, he remarked this. I think this is kind of, he said, he remarked that he had died, had he died when he hit the bottom, his friends would not have known he'd been saved and would have grieved without hope. But his friends had been sharing the gospel with him. And he'd always said, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with that. But then in the fall, that's when he cried out to Jesus. That was the moment where Jesus stepped in and said, you need me. That was the moment of desperation. And so the guy who was telling the story, he said, you just don't know. 
you just don't know what was going on. There are, there are last second converts to Christianity. Their last moment, people who in the terror falling off a cliff and cry out to Jesus and are heard. You just don't know. And that's something that's too heavy for us to carry. So he's saying, Jesus is saying the same thing to us. He would say to Jairus, don't worry. Just lay at my feet. Trust me. Believe me. Sinclair Ferguson talked about that moment. You know, the, We think a person has to walk for 20 years with Jesus to be saved, but Sinclair Ferguson said, the weakest faith gets the same strong Christ as does the strongest faith. So I think there are probably a lot more deathbed conversions, a lot of last-second conversion stories that we're going to hear when we get to heaven. And Jesus redeems the story, not here, not now, but really at the end. The end is when we'll experience our miracle. These miracles are, are not promises that we're going to have a miracle in this life, but they are a foretaste of what God is going to do in the future. Jesus will one day perform fully the salvation that he, he performs in part here. And all who believe in him will wake up to a voice saying something along the lines of, Talitha kumi, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. That's our happily ever after. That's when we say, roll the credits. That's when we enter into our joy. Now, one last quote. Because I found it very heartening as I was reading the story of Jairus and thinking about my own life. Jonathan Edwards said, There is such love and such grace in the heart of God that if you understood the length and breadth and height and depth of it, you would never be discouraged. Let's pray. We talk so often, Lord Jesus, about all the things that we're supposed to do for you. And what you have done for us begins to settle into the background and even float to the bottom instead of being at the top. We pray that you would shake up our lives so that that would float again to the top. That we would see your grace, we would see your love, we would see your sacrifice, we would see your promises, that we would see you, that you would be first and foremost in our hearts' affections, in our minds. We pray that you would bless us with a beautiful vision of what you've accomplished and that we are safe, that we would see the height and breadth and depth and length of the love of God, that we would see you and that we would not have that kind of despairing discouragement that comes in life, but instead we would have hope. We would trust you, that we wouldn't worry, we would just believe. Thank you for these stories. Thank you for the way that they speak into our lives. We pray that they would do their work in our souls and enable us to go into the journey ahead. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.